This morning, if you have a Bible, turn to Revelation chapter 3, and we are getting back in the book of Revelation. We took a couple of weeks off with with Father's Day and, and uh, a couple of other things. And so this morning, we're back in the book of Revelation. We'll, we'll probably be in Revelation through the end of July. We've got a short break scheduled for August uh, with some other things coming down the road. And so uh, this morning, we're picking back up in our study of the seven churches of Revelation. And this morning, we're going to start the study of the book, uh, or excuse me, the Church of Philadelphia. And so as we get into this chapter this morning, uh, let me remind you that we are studying seven letters written to seven real historical churches in the first century. Uh, These were real churches that existed in the Apostle John's day. Christ reveals seven letters that he specifically wants to these seven churches that exist in Asia Minor. But we've also said that as we study these seven churches, they represent seven types of churches that have existed all the way through history. In other words, because seven is God's number of completion or perfection, every one of these churches in type has existed for the last 2,000 years. The reality is every church that's in existence today probably mirrors one of these seven churches. And so for us as a church, we need to be mindful of of the types of churches there are, and, and certainly there are positive examples, and certainly of these seven churches, there are churches that received stern correction from the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to be one of the churches that is, it is, that is the bright spot, so to speak, uh, amongst these seven churches. And these seven churches also represent for us the entirety of church history, because John's perspective, as he's writing this, is on the day of the Lord. And as he's looking backwards, He's looking at the things that has been, and we've covered this introductory information at the beginning of the book, but know that from John's perspective, the things that have been, has been, is the entirety of church history leading up to the rapture of the church. It, It would take us from the book of Acts all the way through the rapture of the church. And so, and so all of church history can be encapsulated in these seven churches. As a matter of fact, if we look at Ephesus, and again, just to remind you of where we, we've studied the last several weeks, Ephesus represents for us the period from 90 AD at the death of the apostles to 200 AD. These dates are approximate, but, but, but what we learn from Ephesus is that Christ corrected that church at Ephesus because they left their first love. And in church history, the apostles, and, and right after the death of the apostles, people began to deviate from the Word of God in their teachings and in their writings. And these were good men, godly men. Many of them gave their life for what they believed, but they began to leave the Word of God and deviate from it. And God says of the church at Ephesus that they left their first love. And then we've studied the church at Smyrna, and Smyrna in church history represents the time period from 200 to 325 A.D., and this was one of the two churches that Christ did not correct. As a matter of fact, there was no correction for this church, and the reason why is because he had charged them to be faithful to the death, because it was a time of great persecution against true believers in Jesus Christ. And what we saw in the church of Smyrna was the the development of this false religious system that God called the synagogue of Satan in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 9. Satan began to come against uh, the, the body of Christ, the true church, and, 
and, and the persecution ramped up against it, and he began to martyr true saints of God. And he established a beginning, the beginnings of a false religious system. And then we studied the church at Pergamos that took us from 325 to 500 A.D. And, and God tells us in that passage in Revelation 2 and verse 13 that, that the synagogue of Satan now resulted in a seat of authority. And, and, and Satan got a seat in that synagogue, that false religious system, and that's where he dwelt. And, and interestingly... It says of the church at Pergamos, one of the criticisms that Christ gives that church is in verse 14. He says, thou hast them that hold the doctrine of Balaam. And and we took a lot of time to study what is the doctrine of Balaam. And it's getting the children of Israel to worship idols and and to eat things that are forbidden. And and man, again, we don't have time to rehash all that, but it's a significant point in church history where Satan's strategy changes from outright persecution against the church to counterfeiting the church. He, he began to counterfeit biblical Christianity, and he has a synagogue and now a seat. And then we studied in Thyatira, which takes us from 500 to 1000 AD, that there's a woman named Jezebel, who again, that woman is a religious system, and Christ calls her the depths of Satan. And so in church history, we, we studied that this Jezebel is nothing more than a Babylonian false religious system. God's word tells us in Revelation 17 and verse 5 that Babylon is the mother of harlots. In other words, she's the mother of all false religious systems that are satanic in nature. And again, because, because the devil couldn't destroy the church through persecution, he now attempts to counterfeit it through false religion. And then we study the church at Sardis that represents 1,000 to 1,500 A.D. And in that time period, we saw that although Satan's universal church system and religious system was overtaking the entire Roman Empire in the world, in Sardis, Christ commended a group of people who never were a part of it. As a matter of fact, he says in, in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 4 that there were a few names in Sardis which have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. And, and what we talked about is, is during that time from 1,000 to 1,500, you began to see what was called in church history the, the Protestant Reformation, where people were beginning to, to protest against a universal world religious system. They began to protest and reform the Roman Catholic Church, but God never called us to reform. God's always called us to repent. And there were people that were never part of that false religious system in, the, in, in church history. There, there were people that were never wrapped up in it. There were people that had never defiled their garments, and they were called different things throughout history. And Christ just takes some white space and and says of the church of Sardis, man, there's a few people that haven't defiled their garments. They don't need reformation because they never were part of a false religious system. And we studied that extensively as we studied the church of Sardis. And and this morning, we're going to begin the study of the church of Philadelphia, which takes us, at least in church history, from 1500 to 1900 A.D. in type or in picture. And we'll get to that in just a second. And then, and then lastly, I just want to say that these seven churches also represent for us 
a prophetic picture of some things that will happen in the tribulation. Because tribulation saints are going to have to overcome certain challenges in the tribulation. And, and so we've studied all that in history uh, and in previous lessons. So look at Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 to 13. Let's get started with Philadelphia this morning, and uh, we'll cover just a couple of points. Look at verse 7. It says, the angel of the, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth and no man shutteth, and shutteth, and no man openeth, I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. For thou hast a little strength, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews, and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them come and worship before thy feet, and to know that I have loved thee. Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I will also keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the, all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. Behold, I come quickly. Hold fast that which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more, and I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God, and I will write upon him my new name. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith to the churches. And so, and so this morning, we, we're following the same basic outline that we've covered the previous five churches with. We're going to see, number one, we're going to study the church. What is specific and unique about this church, and, and what can we learn from it? Number two, what can we learn about Christ? Because Christ reveals himself very uniquely and specifically to each of these seven churches. And then thirdly, we're going to see the commendation. If there's anything that Christ commends this church for, we want to take note of that. Because, man, if Christ says that you're doing something good, let's learn from that. And then number four, there's correction. And if, if he corrects a church, man, we need to take note of that. And then lastly, he issues a challenge to each of these seven churches. And so this morning, we will not get through that outline. As a matter of fact, we will only get through the first two things uh, this morning. And so we'll spend about three weeks on the church of Philadelphia. So let me pray for us. We'll get in the text and we'll finish in just a few minutes. Father, thank you for the morning. Uh, God, we need you as we study. We, we trust your word. God, we trust your Holy Spirit to reveal to us, uh, rightly divided and in context, exactly what we need to have uh, for our life. God, help it not to be just an academic exercise, but help it to be transformational. God, we need to be transformed from your word. We'll give you the glory for that. We trust you for that. We ask it all in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so let's start number one with the church. And we're going to talk about this, this church in the city of Philadelphia. Historically speaking, this is a unique city. It actually gets the name, and, and you have this blank a little bit later in your notes, but Philadelphia, the, the, the literal definition of that name literally means brotherly love. But it comes from an interesting historical story. In 189 B.C., there was a king named King Eumenes of Pergamon. And, 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 and he had a brother who would be his successor as king. And he loved his brother so much, King Attalus, that his loyalty and his love for his brother earned that king the nickname Philadelphus literally meaning one 
who loves his brother. And, and so just historically, that's kind of where the city came from. It was from this king who, who, who wanted his brother to be the successor uh, in the rulership of it. But practically speaking, we know that the word Philadelphia in the Bible means brotherly love. It's made up of two Greek words, philos and adelphos, if that means anything to you. Uh, but the same word is also used in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 8. It says, finally, be ye of one mind, having compassion one of another, love as brethren. Be pitiful, be courteous. And, and so when God looks at this church... He gives it the one word name that really encapsulates everything about it. And when God sees this church, he calls it Philadelphia. It's full of brotherly love. Again, it's representative of this period of time, 1500 to 1900 AD. And if you know anything about church history, and if you don't, you need to. If you know anything about church history, it's literally the greatest time of world missions the world has ever seen. Because the word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ reached the world. It reached the world. And so when we come upon this Philadelphian church age and, and, and we, we study this church, we need to understand that God blessed this church. God gave them an open door of utterance. God got his word in the hands of the common man, and he did it in a common language, which was English. And the common man took the common word of God in a common language and took it to the world. Millions of people came to Christ. Churches were planted. Mission movements were started and continued. Psalm 119 and verse 130 says, The entrance of thy words giveth light, and it giveth understanding to the simple. And so, man, we can learn something about this church. It was the, the church of brotherly love. And God set this church in front of an open door to get the gospel to the world. So practically speaking, this Philadelphian church, for us, it ought to be a pattern for brotherly love. It ought to be a pattern for brotherly love. As we study this church, we can't miss the practical application of Scripture for our life. You know, brotherly love ought to be part of every church. But it ain't the case, is it? I mean, in every church. So, so let's talk about it. First John chapter 3 and verse 14 says, We know that we passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. John chapter 13 and verse 35, By this shall all men, Christ says, By this shall all men know that you're my disciples. Because you can rattle off 150 verses from memory. That's not what he said. He said, you're going to know, all men are going to know that you're my disciples if you have love one to another. And so this thing of brotherly love at Philadelphia is a thing that we need to glean from and learn from. It's a pattern for us as New Testament believers, as disciples of Christ. Now, let me just tell you, listen, there will be something that always challenges your love for the brethren. And what will challenge it is your love for the world. You see, you see, you're going to be caught loving something. And you've got the capacity to love the brethren. But if you're not careful, you'll misguide and misappropriate that love that you should have for the brethren. And you'll start loving the world instead. So 1 John chapter 2 and verse 15 says this, Love not the world, right? 
Neither the things that are in the world. Does anybody in this house got some things? I mean, if y'all been to my house, you know I got things, man. I can't even park in my garage because I have things, right? John tells us in 1 John, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. And then he goes on to say, if any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but it's of the world. And then he tells you in verse 17 a key thing that you need to realize about the world and the things in the world. You ready? The world passeth away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth, how long? Forever. And and so God's challenge to us is, and, and God's pattern for us through Philadelphia is, we ought to love the brethren. But man, the thing that will challenge and, and, and come against your love for the brothers and sisters in Christ, and specifically the love for the brethren in this local church, the thing that will come against that is your love for the world. So, so get this key in your notes. When we love the world, we love temporal things. We love temporal things. We love the world, and we love things in the world, and we need to understand that these things are nice for a moment, but they're temporal. God says that the world is going to pass away on the lust thereof. And listen, the things that we find ourselves falling in love with, fill in the blank for your life. Man, if it has anything to do with the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, it's temporal. I can't wait to get a new fill-in-the-blank house, car, job, toy, hobby, uh, fill in the blank. There, there are things that we fall in love with that aren't eternal, and, and those very things not only are temporal, but they also steal the capacity of our love for the brothers and sisters in Christ. You see, we'll never be the church that God intends for us to be when we fall in love with the world instead of loving the brethren. And so here's the second key. When we love the brethren... What we're loving is eternal things and eternal people. You see, if you're born again this morning, the reality is you and I are going to spend an eternity with Christ. And listen, we're going to spend an eternity with the body of Christ. So you may not like the people in this room, but you're going to spend eternity with them. So you might as well love them now. Because you're going to be together a really long time. Hello? So, so listen, uh, we need to be mindful that it's important to love the brethren. I mean, this, this is the family that we're going to spend eternity with. And here, here's the reality. Here's the reality. Why would you not love them now? I mean, many Christians, most Christians, probably love their material possessions, their worldly lusts, Their physical blessings, their physical family, more than they love the brethren. But can I just tell you, in eternity, the only people that are going to be there are those that are born again and bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. And whatever you love now, if it's not eternal, well, man, you might as well start start loving what's going to last forever. And it includes the relationships that we have in this body of believers. Okay, 
Okay, so, so Philadelphia practically is a pattern for us for brotherly love. What do I love more than my brother? And if there's anything that's in that blank, man, it, it's probably the wrong thing. It's probably the wrong thing. Another key note about the church at Philadelphia, it's only one of two churches that Christ does not command to repent. The church at Smyrna and the church at Philadelphia are the only two churches of the seven churches that Christ does not directly and specifically tell them in his letter to repent. And what that tells me is they didn't have anything to repent of. They were doing what God intended for them to do. Okay, and so that's the church of Philadelphia. That's a little bit of introduction into, into who we're talking about the next couple of weeks. And then number two, we need to talk about Christ. Because in each of these seven churches, Christ reveals himself in a very unique way to this church and to every church. He, he reveals something that's key to that particular church. And so look at verse 7, the last half of the verse. These things saith he that's holy... And he that's true, and he that hath the key of David, and he that openeth and no man shutteth, and shutteth and no man openeth. And, and, and so God's going to reveal his character to this church in a fourfold manner. And we need to pay attention to how Christ reveals himself because that's something that church needed, and it's something that this church needs. And so, number one, Christ reveals himself as he that is holy. He that is holy. And so get this in your notes. Christ's holiness affirms his deity. In other words, he's revealing to the church at Philadelphia that he and he alone is holy. It, it affirms his deity to this church. And we're going to spend a lot of time on this one because it's important. I'm not sure we understand fully what it means when Christ says he's holy. So let's unpack that. Let's, let's talk about that. The first time the word holy is used in your Bible is in Exodus chapter 3 and verse 5. And it's the story of when Moses comes face to face with the burning bush. In Exodus 3 and verse 5, he said, Draw not hither, but put off thy shoes from thy feet, for the place where thou standest is holy ground. And so the first time in your Bible the word holy is used, it's connected with a place and it's connected with a person. It, it's a man coming face to face with God Almighty. And God says this is holy ground. That word holy means sacred. It means reverenced. It, it means worthy of glory, not to be profaned. And as Christ reveals himself to this church in Philadelphia, he's telling them the first thing he tells them is, I'm holy. As we study Scripture, we see over and over and over again that Christ is called holy all through the Bible. Luke chapter 1 and verse 35, even at conception with Mary, the Bible says in Luke 1 and verse 35, the angel answered her, the Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. In Mark chapter 1 and verse 20, 24, these demons says, let, let us alone. What have we to do with thee, thou son of G Jesus of Nazareth? Art thou come to destroy us? I know thee who thou art, the Holy One of God. Acts chapter 4 and 27, 
He's called the holy child Jesus. Acts 4 and verse 30, he's called the holy child Jesus. Acts 13 and verse 35, he called, he's called thine holy one. And I think we need to be reminded that Christ is holy. That he's God. You say, well, just how holy is he? Well, let me tell you how holy he is. He's so holy that the things of creation that are in his presence right now, all they can say about him is that he's holy. As a matter of fact, in Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 to 3, when we, when we see Isaiah's vision, the Bible says in, in verse 1, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. And above it stood the seraphims. And God has something very unique to say about these seraphims. Each one of them had six wings. So angels don't have wings, but seraphims do. And seraphims are not angels, and angels are not seraphims. And you say, well, how do you know that? And I would say, because they're spelled different. Angel is not spelled seraphim, and seraphim is not spelled angel. And so these seraphims had six wings. With twain and with two, he covered his face. With twain, he covered his feet. With twain, he did fly. And one cried one to another and said, here's what they said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. When you compare Scripture with Scripture, you find in Revelation chapter 4 and verse 8 that those same creatures are called four beasts, and each of them had six wings about him. And they were full of eyes within, and they rest not day and night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. You see, Christ is so holy that in his presence, these created beings called seraphim have nothing else to say other than holy, holy, holy. Day and night without rest. That's how holy Christ is. That's how powerful he is. That's how just he is. That's how reverenced he should be. That's his character. That's his nature. That's who he is. He is holy. And so because Christ is holy, it ought to provoke our holiness. Because of who he is and because of how holy he is, because he is almighty God, let it have an effect on you and me. And it shouldn't just be intellectual assent. Oh yeah, the Bible says Christ is holy. Okay. As a matter of fact, it ought to flow down into the very manner of our life. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 15 and 16 says this, But as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. Because it is written, be ye holy, for I am holy. And that's an Old Testament quote. Peter's quoting Leviticus 11 and verse 44. And when you read Leviticus 11, what you're finding is this distinction between what's clean and and unclean, clean animals, unclean animals, what you can eat, what you can't eat. And again, we're not ascribing some kind of uh, Old Testament law to our life today, but the point is that Christ is holy, and as such, 
it ought to have an effect on the manner of our conversation, the manner of our lifestyle. And can I just tell you that your perspective of Christ's holiness has everything to do with your own holiness. You see, if you see Christ the way Isaiah saw him in Isaiah chapter 6, man, you'll fall on your face as dead. You'll become undone. You'll yield your life to him and surrender to him. But man, listen, if you've got a small view of God's holiness, if you have a small view of Christ's holiness in your life, well, you'll choose to yield to your, to your sinful desires and to your flesh instead of yielding your life to God. Yielding your life to God always results in more holiness. And yielding your life and my life to sin and to the flesh always results in more death. And the key is what you really understand about Christ's holiness. That's the key. How do you see Christ? Do you see him the way the Bible reveals him? Or do you, do you see him in a way that makes you less holy so that you can be comfortable with your sin? Man, Christ reveals himself to this church at Philadelphia. Number one, he that's holy. Number two, he reveals himself as he that's true. He that's true. And so get this key in your notes. Christ is true because he is God. He's true because he's God. And, and, and again, we have a, a numerous amount of scriptures. You've got them in your notes. Can I just tell you, John chapter 17 and verse 3 says of God that this is eternal, life eternal, that they may know thee the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. Titus 1 and verse 2 tells us that God cannot lie. 1 John chapter 5 and verse 20 says, We know the Son of God has come and hath given us an understanding that we may know him that is true, and we are in him that is true, even in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. So Christ reveals himself to this church, number one, as he that's holy, but number two, he that is true. Because God's always true. The minute God lies, he can't be God anymore. He can't be God. Because God cannot lie. Romans chapter 3 and verse 4 says, God forbid, yea, let God be true and every man a liar. Right? And so Christ is true. And as we run the, the, ram, uh, the ramifications through Scripture, as we cross-reference and, and study this thing of trueness out, even in Christ's earthly ministry, man, he uses this word concerning himself. He said in John 1 and verse 9, that was the true light. Not just the light, but the true light that lighteth every man that cometh into the world. And because he lights every man, every man's accountable. It says he lights every man, by the way. So it kind of destroys the limited atonement fallacy. God reveals himself to every man. He lighteth every man that cometh into the world. Number two, Christ is the true bread. John chapter 6 and verse 32, Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven, but my Father giveth you the true bread from heaven. You say, well, that's just word salad, man. He's, no, no, no. God's trying to show you something in that word true. He's trying to show you that he is God. John 15 and verse 1, Christ says, I am the true vine, and my father is the husbandman. 
And so Christ is holy, but secondly, Christ is true because he is God. And here's the practical application for me and for you. Because Christ is true, he can be trusted. He, and and don't, don't pass that with intellectual assent and keep going. If Christ is true, and he is, well, he can be trusted. As a matter of fact, I would go on a limb and say, how can you trust anything or anyone else? I mean, what are you going to trust, man? Seriously, you're going to trust CNN? And for the Republicans, uh, you're going to trust Fox News or Drudge or, or Breitbart or whatever. Are you going to trust your Instagram feed, your Facebook news feed? I mean, you're going to trust the government? Give me a break. Are you going to trust the science? Is that what you're going to trust? How about this? Some of you, some of you struggle right here. You're going to trust your feelings and emotions? You're going to, you're going to trust your feelings and emotions? Are those true? What is true? Well, God is true. So because God is true and Christ is true, he can be trusted. And listen, you need to understand that God has relegated his truth to his word. And because he's relegated his truth to his word, you can trust what the word of God says. Psalm 119 and verse 160. The Bible says, thy word is true from the beginning. So just crack it open to Genesis 1-1, and starting there, it's true. It's all true. And every one of thy righteous judgments endureth forever. At the end of Revelation, Revelation 21 and verse 5, it says, He that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, unto John, Write, for these words are true. And faithful. Man, I don't know what you're trusting in today. You got a lot of options. You got a lot of options to trust in. You can, you can trust in the government. You can trust in the science. You can trust in tradition. You can trust, trust in your own intellect. You can trust in your own reasoning ability. You can trust in your experiences. You can trust in your feelings and emotions. Or you can trust in the one person that is true, and that's Christ. And because Christ has relegated his authority through his word, you can trust every single one of them. Man, the biblical worldview, a biblical mindset, a biblical authority in a Christian's life, that ought to be the norm. Because Christ is true. But even as Christians, can I just tell you, just as much as we struggle with holiness, we struggle with Yielding ourselves to the truth of God's word, don't we? We do. We, we struggle with that. And, and I don't know if we think that God is a liar or that, that God is not really what he says he is or, or, or maybe your view of the Bible is not yet to the point that you believe you can trust God's word. But can I just tell you, you don't really have anything else to stand on. I, I would rather trust in the one who is true than anything else. Because God said, I can, and that's his character and nature. Number three, Christ reveals himself to the church at Philadelphia as he that hath the key of David. And we'll go quickly here. Remember, Christ is revealing himself to this church. He says, I have the key of David. And, and I want you to understand that keys in the Bible are important. Keys grant access to things, and they 
exercise authority over things. If you were to go back to Isaiah chapter 22, you find a a cross-reference concerning this key of David or this key to the house of David. And let's look at it very quickly, Isaiah 22, verses 20 to 23. It says this, It shall come to pass in that day, key phrase in your Bible, that I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him in thy robe and strengthen him with thy girdle, and I will commit thy government into his hand. And he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the house of Judah, and the key of the house of David will I lay upon his shoulder. So he shall open, and none shall shut, and he shall shut, and none shall open. I will fasten him as a nail in a sure place, and he shall be for a glorious throne to his father's house. And and if you've been around the Bible for any minute, you already can see through Eliakim's life, he is a great Old Testament type and picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's clothed with a robe. He's strengthened with a girdle. He's committed with a government. He's going to be the father over Judah and those in Jerusalem, and he has all authority placed on his shoulder. You see, when someone has the king's key, they have access and authority. They have the key to his treasure, and that's what Eliakim have. And so, again, we don't have the time this morning because you didn't pack a lunch, but doctrinally, the key of David doctrinally unlocks the treasure of God's people. And doctrinally, what he's talking about is the house of David, the nation of Israel. Eliakim's name means God raises, or he whom God hath set up. And God raised up Eliakim to be over the household of David. And man, God's people in the Old Testament are called his treasure. As a matter of fact, in Exodus 19 and verse 5, when God's dealing with Israel, he says, Ye shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine. God God has a heart for, for his people the Jew. Psalm 135 and verse 4 says, The Lord hath chosen Jacob unto himself and Israel for his peculiar treasure. And so doctrinally, that key of David has everything to do with the nation of Israel and the kingdom of heaven. But, but practically and inspirationally for us as New Testament believers, can I tell you that key of David unlocks the treasure of God's word and God's work. Because he's talking to a church and he's about to open a door And when he puts that open door in front of Philadelphia, man, they're going to walk through it and take the gospel to the world. And so get these two things in your notes. Number one, God's word is a treasure. Now, some of you haven't figured that out yet. It's a treasure. You don't leave your treasure in your car all week long. You don't leave your treasure on the coffee table. Sunday to Sunday, grab it Sunday morning on the way to church, drop it off Sunday afternoon on the way back in the house. It's not the way you treat treasure. It's something valuable. It's something important to you. You guard it. You protect it. You enjoy it. Proverbs 2 and verses 3 to 4 says this, Yea, if thou criest after knowledge and lifted up thy voice for understanding, if thou seekest her as silver and searchest for her as hid treasure. The context is knowledge and understanding and wisdom. And God says it's hid treasure. And that's what the Word of God is. But most Christians never fully understand that. Most most Christians never pursue the hid treasure that God has for them in His Word. 
You know, yesterday, I, I, I was working on my car yesterday. If you notice my fingernails, I apologize. I got grease. Like, I can't get this grease out. And uh, so it's like, man, what has he been doing? Uh, so I was turning some wrenches yesterday, and uh, I was listening to a podcast while I was working on one of my Toyotas. And so I got done, and I jumped in the, in the 4Runner to just ride it around the block to, uh, to test drive it to make sure I didn't screw anything up. And as I'm test driving it, I, I realize about a mile down the road, I think I left my phone on the bumper. And so I get back, I immediately turn around, I come back home, and I'm, I'm like, Allie, have you seen my phone? And my girls are like, no, we haven't seen it. And Allie's like, no, we haven't seen it. And they start calling it. I don't hear it ringing. And I'm like, oh, man, what do I do? Well, well you know, it's not, an, a, it's not a super expensive phone, but it's valuable to me. And I started freaking out. So I got in the car, and I drove down the road again, and I'm looking, I'm looking, I'm looking, and I can't find it. So then I come back home again, and I get on the whole, you know, find my, find my phone thing on the website, right? And boom, it, it drops the pin right on where the phone is, apparently. And I go back, and I'm driving by, and there's people walking their dogs, and they're like, this guy, what is this guy doing, man? He's drove by like 17 times in three minutes. What is this weirdo doing? I'm like rolling the window down. Have you guys seen a phone? And they're like, no. And I'm like, well, it was sitting on my car. I was working on it. And then I drove and I think it fell off. And they're like, who does that? That's stupid. <laughs> I agree. But it was valuable. And in my heart, I knew if I don't find this phone, I'm about to have to drop some coin to get a new phone. And so, man, I'm searching diligently to find it. And thank God for, you know, the antichrist system of Google that can pinpoint your exact location because I drove back by the, the place where, where the pen was and I had been looking on the road but, but I hadn't looked in people's yards and this thing had bounced two or three times and ended up in somebody's front yard and I found it. The reason I found it is because I searched for it. I found it because I searched for it. I think many times we miss the treasure in God's word because we never put forth the effort to actually search for it. God's word is hidden treasure. But he, he has the, the key to unlock that for us. Colossians 2 and verse 3 says, In whom are, all, are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You've got to know that God's word's valuable. And man, if you'll search for it, if you'll cry after it, if you'll lift up your voice, if you'll get your nose in the book, God will reveal himself to you. He has the key to that. He unlocks the treasure of his word to us. Number two, he unlocks the treasure of his work to us. God's work is also a treasure. Matthew 6 and verse 20 tells us not to lay up for ourselves treasures. Uh, he, he tells us to lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven. Neither were moth uh, nor rust doth corrupt, neither do thieves break through and steal. You see, you see, there are things, as we mentioned earlier, that are eternal in nature. And God says those are the treasures you need to invest in. Invest in your relationship with God. Invest in your relationship with the Word of God. And invest in people. Because those are the only things that are eternal. And, and, and so, man, and I have a lot more verses, but just know that God's work is a treasure, and, and, and God himself opens that door for us to do the work. As a matter of fact, the last point is this, that, that Christ opens and shuts. 
And again, we don't have time, but man, I got a ton of material. If, if you would understand that because he has the key of David, he opens and shut things, shuts things that no man can open and that no man can shut. In other words, he's sovereign in his power. And as we study the Bible, number one, Christ can open the eyes of the blind. He can open eyes that have been shut. You know, John chapter 9 is that, that story where Christ healed the man that was born blind. And in John 9 and verse 32, after the miracle, all the, the, the people surrounding and witnessing this miracle said, since the world began, it was not heard that any man opened the eyes of one that was born blind. No man can do what just happened. Well, God can. Isaiah 42, verses 6 and 7, it's prophesied that Christ would open the eyes of the blind. I mean, isn't that what he did to you and me? Man, if, if he opened your eyes to the gospel, he opened your eyes to the need of a Savior, he opened your eyes to the realization that in your sin you're separated from God, God opened your eyes to that. Christ opens eyes. Number two, he opens hearts. When Paul was preaching in Acts chapter 16 and verse 14, he's preaching, there's this woman named Lydia, a seller of purple. She was from Thyatira. She worshiped God and she heard Paul's preaching. And the Bible says, whose heart the Lord opened. And she attended to the things which were spoken of Paul. You see, Paul was preaching, Lydia was listening, and God opened her heart. I'm thankful, man, that God can do that. If we'll just obey God and take his word to the people that need to hear it, if people give heed to that and listen to that, well, God can open their heart. And just like these students said, that word of God can fall on good ground. It can fall on good ground. Lastly, Christ opens doors. And this is the last point, but listen, when Christ opens a door, he expects the church to go through it. Okay, I know you're done, and don't close your Bibles. You, you can close your Bible. Don't close your mind just yet. When Christ opens a door, he expects the church to go through it and to take advantage of the opportunity. He's telling Philadelphia, I've set before you an open door. We see this again in Scripture in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 12. Paul says, Furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, and a door was opened unto me of who? Of the Lord. And so when Paul went to Troas, his motivation was to preach the gospel. And so he already went with a motivation to preach the gospel. And when he got there, God opened a door. Now that's a whole sermon. Because, because many times, most of us as Christians, we don't get an open, open door to share the gospel because the truth is we don't have a goal of sharing the gospel to start with. God opened the door for Paul because his motivation and mindset was, I'm going to Troas to preach the gospel. Pray for me for an open door. And God opened the open door. This past Wednesday, I, I had the privilege of going to my daughter's swim meet uh, I hated to miss prayer meeting, but, but they only swim two meets at home, and so I felt like it was important to invest in my kids and, and also look for an opportunity to meet some new people. And I asked Cody, I said, man, pray for me. I'm going to be going to this swim meet, and I'm going to be cooking uh, over a grill. Uh, pray that I get to, to witness to somebody. And God put a man with me that was helping serve to, to make food and stuff like that. And man, about three minutes into the conversation, guess what we're talking about? Well, it wasn't about the hot dogs and hamburgers. It was about Christ and how Christ changed my life. 
God gave me and opened a door, but I asked specifically, I'm going to this place in hopes of preaching the gospel to somebody. And God gave me an open door. You see, many times as Christians, when we don't have the mindset to share the gospel, who are we to get frustrated when God doesn't give us the opportunity? We need to go and have a mindset to always be ready to give an answer to any man that asks the hope of the reason of the hope that's in us. The truth is, you and I can miss open opportunities, and many times it has to do with our mindset. And just because God gives us an open door, it doesn't mean there won't be adversity or difficulty. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 16 and verse 9, that a great door and effectual is open unto me. And then he says, there are many adversaries. And so just know that God can open the door. God's interested in opening, door, opening doors. He's opening the doors to share the gospel, to do the work of the ministry. Only Christ can do that. You can't force someone to hear the gospel. You can't force the opportunity. Christ opens those opportunities. So Philadelphia for us is the church of the open door. He says in verse 8, I know thy works. Behold, I've set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. And again, through history, you see God get the gospel to the world from 1500 to 1900 A.D. The truth is, as we get to that seventh church, Laodicea, we're going to find that that's the church of the closed door. As a matter of fact, in that church, Christ is standing on the outside of the door, knocking, trying to get in. Philadelphia is the church of the open door. Laodicea is the church of the closed door. So how do, we, how do we apply what we've learned this morning? Well, I think there's three questions that we, we have to ask ourselves. Number one, does Christ's holiness provoke me to more holiness? That's a good question. Does Christ's holiness provoke me to more holiness? He is holy, and as such as his child, man, the expectation and the worship of him should result in more holiness. Number two, do I truly trust God at his word? And I think a lot of us would answer that question, yeah. But I would say, really, do we? Do we trust his word? Do we really trust him? Because how you make your decisions and what you base your decisions on and the authority of what you're deciding for your life really shows who you trust. Do you really trust God at his word? He's true. And because he's true, you can trust him. He cannot lie. And then the third question is this. Do we pray for and walk through open doors to preach the gospel? You know, we got some guys that go out on Sunday afternoons that, that go to, to Big Spring Park and they evangelize and they go out and they, they try to just have that conversation and they pray for open doors. And they've led some people to Christ. But they're going with the motivation to preach the gospel. And I think for us, we've got to be challenged to say, man, am I really desiring that? Am I praying for that? Am I, am I looking for the opportunity to do that? Or am I just trying to make it to church next Sunday? And God puts the open doors in front of the people that want them. And man, I want them. How about you? I want them. Our church, we need to have that. We, we want God to open the doors to preach the gospel. So let's bow our heads and pray as we, as we get ready to dismiss. Father, we love you. God, we thank you for your word.